Before we start, a quick note that today's episode is about the serious topic of death and has mentions of suicide. If this might be triggering for you, then we advise listening with caution and it may not be appropriate for younger listeners. APRA acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles. Together, there are many difficult issues that we grapple with, and one of those is death and how we die. Today's episode is about VAD, or Voluntary Assisted Dying, and what the realities of legalising VAD for doctors, patients, and our broader communities has been. Victoria was the first Australian state to pass VAD laws, coming into effect in 2019. And this discussion is a reflection on what this has meant for patient safety and choice in dying, what challenges have arisen and what the future could and should hold. Joining me are three guests who each have important involvement in this work. They are general practitioner, Dr. Nola Maxfield, oncologist, Dr. Cameron McLaren, and Andrew Denton, who wears many hats, but perhaps the most relevant to this discussion is that he is a TV and podcast presenter and producer and founder and director of Go Gentle Australia. Nola, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your interest in voluntary assisted dying? Yes, for the last 36 years, I've been working as a rural doctor in Wonthaggy and the Bass Coast area, and that has involved providing cradle to grave medicine, as they say, including the full spectrum of GP and obstetrics, anaesthetics and emergency care, along with palliative care and residential aged care. So caring for people at the end of their life has always been part of what I've done and what I've tried to ensure can be as, as good as good a death as possible for the people and the family involved. And so once uh, voluntary assisted dying became legal in Victoria and they were looking for someone to provide that service within our area, I uh, decided that I would do the training and, and be involved. And Cam, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your involvement in voluntary assisted dying? Uh, so I'm Dr. Cam McLaren. I'm an oncologist in southeast Melbourne. I originally got involved with voluntary assisted dying uh, because I thought it was going to be a very normal progression of what we do in terms of patient-centred care. I mean, voluntary assisted dying came in because of patient and community demand for it. And we as doctors are there to provide education and guidance with regards to medical decisions that are made by patients. We're not there to make decisions for patients or create the path for the patients. We're there to educate and walk with them. So I um, did the training the night before, it went live on the naive understanding that I think I thought it was what we were all going to do, that there weren't that many of us who were stepping up to it. And uh, there were a lot of patients whose needs and wishes were, were not being able to be met. So I then offered um, my services to see patients more broadly uh, from other doctors and from the patient navigators and, and so very quickly became one of the uh, more experienced voluntary assisted dying assessment providers in Victoria. And I think that we'll return to this, um, the importance of patient-centred care again in this conversation. Um, Andrew, could you introduce yourself, please? I guess I'm here as a representative of the person lying in the bed, person being treated. I've had extensive experiences that having had heart surgery and various operations and been blessed with brilliant family GPs all my life. So 
I have a lot of respect for and affinity with as a patient, the medical profession. Uh, I got involved with this specifically um, as a result of doing a lot of research for the first podcast series I made called Better Off Dead uh, back in 2016. And I spent a lot of time talking to uh, doctors and nurses and specialists in Australia and also overseas about this subject. And I've spent a lot of time since uh, looking at and speaking to uh, people in the medical profession about voluntary assisted dying. And you mentioned, and Cam mentioned patient-centered care. What I've discerned is um, there's quite a debate within the medical community about what patient-centered care actually means. And the pointiest end of that is voluntary assisted dying. Uh, I've seen a wide range of responses to it from the deeply engaged uh, people like Cam and, and Nola to the deeply oppositional. And I guess through that prism, uh, is the is the overarching question for the medical profession when it comes to end-of-life care, what are our responsibilities and how much do we trust uh, the person in the bed to know what it is they want for themselves? Thanks, Andrew. And yeah, we hope this conversation will start to explore some of those responsibilities. Death is a difficult topic. Nola, why is it important that we talk about it? Sometimes it is only with the with the doctor that people will feel confident in talking about death that may be a topic that is not able to be raised within their family or with their friends. And for other people, it's quite easy to talk about, but for many people, it's not. And I think we need to give them permission to be able to talk about that. I think we have to be honest with our patients. And I do see people who get what I would call futile care because people haven't had that discussion and we need to respect a patient's wishes they need to know that they're approaching the end of their life so that they can then make decisions on what they need to do what they would like to do in the last part of their life if there's anything they need to finish off what they would like to say to to family and friends and I think that we can't deny them that I think that's part of the care we should provide. Cam, could you comment on the com difficult conversations that you have um, and still keeping a patient focus even when the patient is dying? Oh, yeah, look, we have difficult conversations every day uh, in oncology and it, it can range from, I'm sorry, but I think we need chemotherapy to avoid your cancer from coming back to uh, look, you, your incurable cancer has progressed and we need to talk about next line chemo or, or, or to things like look, the the cancer is doing what it wants no matter what we do and it's now come the time where we need to talk about whether more treatment is in your best interests and it, it really comes down to the art of medicine and, and that's really why I chose oncology in the first place is I thought it was a wonderful balance between the art and the fantastic science that there is in in regards to cancer medicine as well people remember 10% uh, of what you say and 90% of how you say it and so tackling those those difficult conversations is incredibly important, uh, as Nola said, to, to frame the rest of the patient's life, to, to help them achieve their goals, give them a time frame and an expectation to how well they're going to be during however long they've got. Uh, I think it's important that we have upfront discussions and we don't shy away from the, the difficult discussions. And so now we've got this um, situation for a couple of years now in Victoria where um, voluntary assisted dying is legal, it is possible. I wonder, Andrew, could you tell us what, what this means for health practitioners and for members of the public now that VAD is legal in Victoria? Well, I, I think the best way to answer that is to talk about why the law was necessary. 
a significant parliamentary inquiry heard evidence. I think there were 17 days of public hearings and over a thousand submissions, one of the biggest public inquiries ever held in Victoria. And what came out of that was uh, what the committee found was um, that there were repeated examples of doctors not giving sufficient uh, pain relief at the end of life for fear of prosecution, uh, that families were having to, uh, and people who were dying were having to suffer through long drawn out deaths by uh, refusing nutrition and, and um, hydration, um, because that was what the law allowed, that terminally ill people were suiciding, uh, because they, they felt they had no good pathway, there was no medical pathway left to them. And so the, the summary of all of this was that uh, people at the end of the life and their families watching on who were in that critical situation where they might choose VAD were completely disempowered. They felt disempowered. And I have spoken to and seen many, many testimonies of uh, people in the medical system at the end of life literally begging for more pain relief. This person needs more pain relief and being told we can't do that. Or after the event of being told, look, that's, that's normal for dying. You don't really know what you saw, a kind of a gaslighting going on. To me, VAD law is about uh, power. And I don't mean that in the brute sense, but I mean it in terms of if you're at the end of your life and you've run out of medical options, before VAD law, you had very little power in the system. One of the testimonies to the, uh, that committee was from uh, an intensivist in Victoria, Professor Charlie Cork. There was a tiny note in there I took. At Barwon Hospital, we've done a, a survey of all their medical notes to see how often what the patient was thinking had been mentioned. And I think it was in less than 5% of those notes. So uh, this is about uh, reversing what I, the power of the doctrine of double effect. And it's not just about what the doctor intends, it's about what the person in the bed also intends and needs. Two things, Andrew. The doctor you just mentioned, Dr. Charlie Cork, was in our previous episode about VAD. So that's a good reminder to check that out after this episode. Uh, and also, could you tell us what is the doctrine of double? This goes back uh, to St. Thomas Aquinas. And this was, um, you know, it has its value, certainly in the medical profession. What it says is uh, essentially that a doctor can give as much pain relief as necessary uh, to relieve pain even if the unintended consequence is to hasten a patient's death, but they must never give that amount of pain relief if they intend to hasten a patient's death. Now, of course, you know, there are doctors who have very strong religious beliefs who, uh, who believe that death should be a natural process. You know, there's actually quite a lot of our medical system is built on that belief. So um, the ultimate effect of that can be for uh, doctors who are, uh, hold that the belief that don't want to do anything that may hasten the patient's death is they may uh, give uh, the necessary drugs more slowly. And I've certainly, I've I interviewed a senior palliative care physician here uh, in Sydney, at St Vincent's, who actually said that to me. If I can't help you live, if I can't help you with your pain, I'll help you live with your pain. Um, so that's an example of, as, as Marshall Perron, the man that uh, passed the first voluntary dying law in Australia back in the 90s in the Northern Territory said to me, this debate is about who has the keys to the medicine cabinet. <laughs> and uh, the doctrine of double effect, uh, you know, that, that if you like, codifies that it's, it's the doctrine. So, so we hear keys. about hastening death. Cam, does it actually happen? What do, what do you see around you? 
outside of voluntary assisted dying, yeah, I, I think it absolutely does, uh, in, intentionally or unintentionally. This this has been happening as as part of standard terminal care in hospitals for for longer than I've been a doctor. Absolutely. Um, you know, this is uh, my introduction to palliative care as an intern was that um, you know the doctor would uh, double the syringe driver every day, and that was considered standard palliative care and that's you know that's not what palliative care is um but that that uh you know that that kind of process of hastening death or not wanting patients to linger in a in a state of of pain and and purgatory um you know the the intent there is certainly or i would like to think coming from a compassionate um place but the way that we've been practicing end-of-life care has been highly variable and highly unregulated. And the introduction of a, of a law such as voluntary assisted dying gives a structure, uh, it gives a way of monitoring what we do, and it, and it gives a, a mechanism of how to do it um, that is reliable, um, that is safe, um, and, and is uh, also patient-centered and above, above the table. You know, We all know what we're doing, uh, and it's no longer behind... Um, closed doors or nudge, nudge, wink, wink medicine. And so, Nola, is that what you see around you, is the reality that this law has made these changes? Yes, I think it gives the control back to the the patient. And previously it was all held by the doctor, as has been said, and it was really uh, a lottery as to which doctor you ended up with and what sort of treatment they gave you. Uh, but it was still involved the doctor making decisions on what was uh, valuable and what was going to uh, give the effect the patient wanted. So I think it's great to actually have this out in, in the open. The patient then has the option on uh, falling back on it if they want to. Not everyone's going to take it, but just to know that it's there can give people a lot of peace of mind. And Andrew, what does this mean for a patient's support network, like their friends, their family? It means many things. Uh, I've, I've had the privilege of speaking to a number of families that have now been through this law. Uh, it means on the one hand, um, they don't have to watch the person they love suffer. Uh, and that's hugely important because the trauma caused by that uh, is enormous. But it means on the other hand, there's slightly surreal experience of farewelling a person at, uh, on a designated day and at a designated time. And that's extremely difficult. And, you know, one of the the core issues when this law is debated, as it should be, is, well, how do you write a law so that people who shouldn't be eligible are coerced into ending their lives? What the Victorian experience has shown is, in fact, that coercion is all the other way. It's families not wanting people to do this and that emotional pressure. And look, uh, voluntary assisted dying is humane and merciful and, and long overdue and much demanded and much required in Australia, but it's still not a golden ticket. You still have to die. And I don't know anyone that uh, thinks dying is an easy thing to do. In in your experience, what has the uptake been, Cam, from patients? So the uptake of voluntary assisted dying has certainly been greater than what was expected or predicted in uh, before it came in. I think looking at a at, at models across uh, from other jurisdictions, it it does tend to work at around 0.2 to 0.4 of the yearly deaths in any jurisdiction in the first year, and uh, that then you know escalates at a at a at a rate uh, over the next few years to level out at about 
you know, in Canada, it's uh, around 4% of the yearly deaths. Um, in Oregon, it's far less than that. Um, so it, it really is jurisdiction and culture dependent about what the ultimate uptake is going to be like. Um, but I, I think if we look at that 0 0.2 to 0.4% in the first year, that's actually where exactly where the first year's uh, applicants actually came out as. The uptake from it on an individual level, I think people have really found it gives them a lot of comfort in terms of receiving the medication. There's a, there is a real palliative effect of receiving this medication or even having wishes uh, respected. And, uh, you know, often when we see, when I see patients, some of them are very close to the end of their life. And I know that the, we're not going to have a, uh, a good chance of getting through the application process because that does take a significant amount of time. But people still feel validated and heard and it is palliative to, to go through the process anyway. It's been, it's the biggest thing I think I've found is that it, uh, when receiving the medication, people are able to then not worry. People at this stage um, of their chronic illnesses, and most of them are cancer patients, very few of them are scared of dying. They've grown accustomed to that since they, the day they were first diagnosed when they first heard the C word. What they're not sure of and what they're worried about is how that's going to happen. What receiving this medication gives them is comfort in knowing that if their worst fears are about to be realized, they have another option. And so they've, they've, they get the medication, they have it in the cupboard, and they save it for a really, really rainy day. And if that really, really rainy day never happens and they die a natural death through palliative care, then that's fantastic. But they don't have to worry about their worst fears coming true anymore. It's had a huge effect on the anxiety around at the end of life. And I think also on the patient's families who see them go through that, they help them achieve something in terms of the application process. And, you know, this is mum's wish and I'm helping them, her and I'm being there for her and I'm contributing to that. It gives them something to do. It gives them something to help them work towards. So it gives them uh, a lot of validation uh, in terms of helping that person in that phase of their life. So I think it has a profound effect on the people around them as well. Nola, I'd be keen to hear whether what Cam said resonates with you and your experience with your patients. Oh, yes, uh, definitely. For people in rural areas, sometimes it's difficult for them to actually uh, get the necessary paperwork done. Uh, you know, they've got to have two doctors and uh, just accessing those two from a rural community can be really difficult for people. And if it's late in their disease process, sometimes we're actually not able to get through the process in time. And sometimes they're dying not in the way that they had thought. And I know with one situation, somebody who had worked out exactly where he wanted to be and uh, on his property and he had it all arranged, who was going to be there, what was going to happen. But unfortunately, we couldn't get the voluntary assisted dying process done in, in time. And he didn't quite achieve that, but he almost achieved what he wanted. And yes, I think it does help the family. It means people have been able to be honest in front of their relatives uh, about what they want. And I find that's been very good for me to be able to facilitate that uh, as part of the whole process. I'm conducting a PhD into into that effect actually is the effect of voluntary assisted dying involvement on the grief and bereavement process. That's that's how much I suspect this is having a significant impact in the grief process. Yeah, so I haven't got any results yet, but what I've what I've embarked upon is is looking at essentially the prevalence of what is now referred to as 
prolonged grief disorder, which is a new entity in the DSM-5. What's DSM-5? It, it's essentially the, di the diagnostic uh, coding um, from a psychological perspective regarding things like major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. And it, it actually gives us uh, a structured uh, diagnosis to these conditions. And so previously, um, things like major depressive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, they all existed and were able to be studied in populations. As of last year, prolonged grief disorder is now a separate entity, which has a bit of overlap between some of those, but is its own uh, specific diagnosis now. And we're actually able to assess that in subpopulations. So we're, we're only just looking at um, what the uh, prevalence of that is in the general population, in the general bereaved population. And my question is really, well, what's the effect of being exposed to a voluntary assisted dying death on that prevalence? Uh, we, we know that uh, being exposed to a, tra to a traumatic death, such as a suicide death, um, leads to greater risk of things like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and elements that are now considered to be part of uh, prolonged grief disorder. But um, I think one of the main points that we all talk about as people who are involved in voluntary assisted dying is that none of us believe that voluntary assisted dying is suicide. Mm, because I guess some people associate VAD with suicide. And I think this is going to be one of the ways that differentiates it from suicide is that the effect and the outcome and the long-term effects are completely different. Um, one's going to be very negative and I've got a feeling that one is going to be quite positive because of the uh, what VAD provides a patient and their family. And, and um, you know, it's been mentioned uh, just before is that it gives these gives patients and, a, and their family a moment in time where they know that everything that needs to be said must be said by that by that point in time and people can't uh, then say oh not today I'll, I'll talk about with that with them tomorrow or there's there's one last thing that I want them to say but I'm, I'm not ready to talk about it with them yet and then they miss that opportunity voluntary assisted dying gives a definite moment in time where those things need to be said by so it, it allows for those stones to be unturned so my, my, uh, my theory, my hypothesis is that through that, it, it is going to lead to a reduced uh, prevalence of prolonged grief disorder in uh, family members of people who engage in voluntary assisted dying. Um, I'm in the early stages of, of the research at the moment and haven't got any results to, to prove that, but that shall come in the, in the next few years. And Andrew, you've had lots of conversations with patients, family, people involved or not involved with VAD. Anecdotally, does this resonate with you, what, what Cam's hypothesising? Massively, but not without exception. So massively in that uh, going back to what that Victorian inquiry found, the trauma felt by families of not being able to help someone who is in extreme distress was terrible. Uh, and at its worst, if, if that person suicided, and, and all suicides are terrible, and many of these were terrible beyond measure. Any improvement on that is a vast improvement. But in fact, the experience of talking to most people whose uh, family members been through VAD is they are, it, it was such an act of love to, uh, to help the family member to this ultimate moment. The deepest act of love you can ever express in many ways is to let someone go when they have to go, even though you don't want to lose them. I, I see in many ways VAD as being a profound expression of love, but that hasn't been universal. You know, that old uh, Tolstoy thing about every happy family is happy in the same way and every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. 
well, not all families are happy. And, you know, I, I spoke to one family who um, uh, the wife of the man who used VAD uh, is a doctor and does assess uh, for VAD, supported his choice. Uh, the whole family did. But having gone through it, uh, they were very stricken by the experience. And uh, I, I think the children wonder if they did the right thing. So um, even though they understood and supported their father's choice. So um, it's what I was saying before, death is, is a profoundly unsettling experience, no matter which way you cut it. But, but in the main, voluntary assisted dying is absolutely, is everything that palliative care uh, does and aims to do and, and does so admirably, which is to help people live as well as they can while they die. If it's you who's dying, you want your family's last memories of you to be as, as close as possible to the person they loved, not some torn up shell of a human being uh, begging for mercy. And that's what voluntary assisted dying has made possible for those at that extreme level or for those who don't wish to go down the palliative care pathway. And I'm saying that very specifically. It is one of the things that concerns me about this debate. I think palliative care is hugely important, but uh, it is not mandatory. Um, it's not mandatory in this legislation and no medical treatment in Australia is mandatory. And I think we sometimes can overemphasize the palliative care pathway. Not everybody wants that and not everybody needs that. If you're enjoying this episode, first of all, sorry for taking you away from it quickly, but I just wanted to let you know that we have another episode on VAD. Uh, and here's a brief snippet from Dr. Charlie Cork personally just feel a little more relieved that medicine is not turning its back on on a reality of life and death. Be sure to check out that episode and all the rest of ours by searching for Taking Care in your podcast player. And let's get back to Nola, Cam and Andrew. Nola, what were, as, as voluntary assisted dying was becoming legal, um, were there any challenges that you anticipated and have they been realized or have there been new ones? I've one of the challenges I found was actually when doing the training even though I was supportive of the whole process that I did find it personally confronting because um, it actually made me think about issues I guess even though I have dealt with them in many ways over the years and been uh, certainly upset at the fact that I could not um, provide what some of my patients wanted you know all, over all the years you always had people who were saying well you know I don't want to suffer at the end can you end it for me and we always had to say well no we can't do that it's not legal so I welcomed the legislation found it personally difficult but on the training but then once I started doing it I found that uh, it was such a profound service to the patients and their families that it was no longer difficult it was it's not something you'd say you enjoy, but it was professionally rewarding to be able to provide that for them. I guess uh, as part of the legislation, I find it difficult that I can't raise the issue with patients. Um, that's a Victorian specific uh, issue in the legislation. And I don't like the fact that uh, somebody's telling me that I can't offer the full suite of what is available to my patients, that I rely on them having to know about it. And for some people, they may not know about it. They may have um, not heard of what's happening. There may be language difficulties, other barriers to that. So that's something I found difficult as well. And uh, for my rural patients, accessing the, the, the two doctors and getting that all through has sometimes been difficult. 
Sounds like there are um, access levels in terms of information awareness and also um, physical geographical access as well. Cam, what about you? What challenges, um, I guess, A, did you anticipate and B, have emerged? I, I think absolutely it's a confronting thing to do um, when when talking about it at face value. I think the prospect of, of particularly the practitioner administration where we intravenously administer medication to end the life of a patient is incredibly uh, confronting um, when it's taken outside of that patient context. Uh, and so the, the, the idea of doing that was, was very difficult to wrap my head around. Similar to NOLA, I think when, when I started providing that service, it was for patients that I was assessing, obviously. Um, and so I'd get to know them and their, their motivations, their reasons for applying, what they'd gone through over the years with regards to their cancer journey. And when you put a face and a background story to it and, the, and you understand that next level of what you're providing this patient and uh, then it, it, it doesn't, I don't think it's easier, uh, but it's less confronting. And I'm not sure that that's uh, explaining it well, but certainly the idea of it is, is very hard to come to terms with. But when, when you put a patient face and story behind it, um, you, you, you really lean on that professional reward um, and, and understand that you're providing the patient with something. I don't think you're taking anything away because the, the cancer or the disease has already done that. They've it's taken everything away from that patient. You're providing them control. You're providing them comfort and you're providing them support when they've been looking for support you know, for, uh, you know, for this purpose in some cases for weeks or months and feeling like they've not been heard and you're, you're actually validating that. So it's incredibly rewarding work. It's incredibly taxing work. I've just come off a month where I've asked for no referrals for, the, for a month. I've been working quite hard for the last two years on providing voluntary assisted dying to uh, a lot of Victoria actually um, seeing patients all over the state. Uh, and I don't think I realised how much of a toll it was taking at the time. And after having come up for air for a month, it's, uh, I think it certainly was. So I think we need more, more people trained to share that load. We need more doctors to take up this role. We need uh, more doctors in rural areas to take up this, this, uh, this challenging aspect. Uh, and there are other things that, that I think would make it easier, things like utilize, the ability to use telehealth, which is, a, is an, another area of quite significant opposition and, and legal uncertainty. Uh, I think that would, would certainly improve access for particularly some of NOLA's patients and, and other patients in rural areas. And, and I agree that there's, there's a big divide in uh, awareness uh, with our patients about what's available. And also the understanding about what doctors can and can't say. I mean, the, the wording of that restriction is that doc doctors in the course of providing healthcare to a patient uh, must not uh, initiate a conversation that is in substance about voluntary assisted dying. Um, but it doesn't say that that a patient must actually say voluntary assisted dying in order to raise the topic. So when patients actually say, can't you just end it? 
they have initiated a conversation that is in substance around voluntary assisted dying. And doctors, I think, need to be aware that, well, that's what that needs to be recognised as. And you don't have to tease that out of them. And you don't have to actually get the explicit words of, I want to apply for voluntary assisted dying out of your patient in order to then uh, explore it a bit with them. And I, do, I don't think the education has been optimal amongst um, uh, doctors generally. Uh, and healthcare professionals generally outside of the the formal education that is an, on an provided on an opt-in basis. So people who undergo the training, I think, are educated reasonably well. But you no, know, this is this is legislation that applies to every doctor, not just the ones who have done the training. And many doctors have not been educated about what they can and can't talk about, or or, or what the rules are here. And uh, they're they're very worried about contravening laws that they haven't had explained to them. So the you know then we're left with difference of opinion with with interpretation of these laws and, and a, a divide in terms of uh, what should be occurring. So Andrew, not, not all doctors have done the VAD training, which may mean that a patient needs to go to a doctor who isn't someone who they've had a therapeutic relationship with, they don't know them well. What does it mean for the patient that there are fewer practitioners who have this training? Interestingly, uh, one of the doctors I interviewed for the podcast series, Dr. Peter Langer, who's, who runs the acute care unit at Royal Melbourne, he said that even those uh, they weren't all his patients and, and therefore necessarily the, the time with them was a, uh, might only be a matter of weeks. He said because of the nature of the request, um, two things. He said, it's actually improved my uh, skills as a doctor in that he said, I'm a bit ashamed to admit that when I would ask them about suffering, I would unconsciously lead them to talk about the things that I could treat. And I've now come to understand that suffering is a much broader context than perhaps I'd understood. But he also said because of the intensity of that period, that even though it might not be a long relationship, it's, it's a very involved relationship. Um, it is for any doctor, a very big thing for someone to come to you and say, I have reached a point where I, I want to have control over uh, the prospect of any of my own life. Can you help me? And um, I don't think there is, there is any doctor, no matter how long they've been in the business, no matter how many people they, they might have seen die on their watch, who doesn't take that as a profound request. So um, I guess that's my way of saying, you know, it would be ideal if we had a system like the Netherlands, where essentially your GP is with, your, with you all your life. That's kind of how their system works, but we don't have that uh, for different historical reasons. So, um, you know, one of the concerns when this law was debated was a thing called doctor shopping, where uh, some, I don't know how this was ever going to work, but some poor terminal person uh, would not find a doctor who would find them eligible. So they'd just keep traveling around till they find a doctor who did, as if you've got nothing better to do when you're grievously ill. Uh, in fact, the reverse has proven to be true. People have to go on doctor shop unfortunately, because there's so few doctors that will do this. And the most disturbing example I heard of this, under the law, if you have a neurological disease, you have to have two specialists confirm that you have less than 12 months to live. And there was a woman called Helen Jebb who had motor neurone disease, who lived in the center of Melbourne, so right in the middle of all those hospitals. And thankfully her GP was involved with the process and did all the legwork. But to get that second neurological confirmation that she had 12 months or less to live, it didn't even require any of these specialists to be involved in the process other than to go, yes, we think that's a fair prognosis. Uh, they had to approach 30 different specialists. It took six months for a dying woman who was uh, in great fear and a terrible 
story in the end. And uh, I can only echo what Cam and Nola are saying. I understand why there are many reasons why doctors are reluctant or concerned about getting involved. Certainly conscientious objection is an entirely valid reason never to get involved. But I think there are many doctors who maybe haven't considered this. I've been surprised. It surprised me. Two things really surprised me. One is I didn't realize that doctors aren't naturally good at death and dying. I just assumed that came with the territory, but they're human too. None of us really like to face it full on. Uh, and the second thing is, uh, and I still see it, how, um, how little knowledge doctors have of these laws, including many doctors who fiercely oppose them. They simply didn't educate themselves. And, and my sister-in-law lives in Melbourne and she spoke to her family GP just in general about voluntary assisted dying, saying, you know, if the time came, if there's something you'd help me with. And her GP said, oh no, we don't kill our patients. Uh, and this gets back to the concept of patient-centered care. And I understand doctors have a huge range of responsibilities and this you would think would over a career maybe not come up many, many times, but nonetheless, it is, to use that word again, the perhaps the most profound thing that a doctor can be asked to do. I feel it is important that doctors educate themselves and I, I have seen and I truly believe that the existence of this law and the very conversation that's been had now with medical professionals that will go to other medical professionals, that the tide will rise, that a better conversation will arise within the medical community, not just about what the law is, but what, why is there a need for it? What does it mean when somebody asks you this? It doesn't always mean that this is what they're going to do or even that this is what they need or what they want. But it's a, it's a permissive law. It permits a conversation which was impossible to have before and is a very necessary conversation. Nola, has, this, has being involved in BAD changed how you think about death as a, as a practitioner, as a GP? I think it's added an extra dimension to uh, how I think about it and can involve it in, in work. Uh, I've seen many deaths over, over the time and you certainly do reflect back, but I do feel that this has um, increased my ability to, to deal with it and think about it in ways that um, don't take me somewhere that I would would not be within the letter of the law and uh, I think that's valuable in that part of it. What what should the future look like for this VAD landscape in order for it to be more even more patient-centered you know we've had this law in place for a couple of years and we've obviously there's a bunch of things that we've learnt what what should change Cam? I, I just wanted to touch on the 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 requirement for a specialist in Victoria, because this is something that other jurisdictions have successfully avoided um, to, you know, I think sometimes is, is seen to be a weakening of their acts, but to me is a strengthening in their access. So um, what I, what I think is important is that as an example in Victoria in 2020, the, um, uh, there were 6,600 plus GPs registered. Uh, compared to 265 oncologists. So if we're asking voluntary assisted dying assessments, 50% of those to be performed by a, a comparatively much smaller proportion of doctors, uh, I think that's just what poor workforce planning. And the, the benefit of involving a specialist in the application really is in the prognostication. That's, that's really what a specialist is there for, to make sure that the patient is informed about all of their treatment options and, and a reliable, well, as reliable as can be, 
prognosis is given to that patient. But that doesn't need to be uh, done by an assessing doctor. Uh, two non-specialist doctors can use the information provided to them by a specialist to uh, find that patient eligible. So I think that's that's been a real problem within Victoria, particularly for oncologists such as myself, and has led to me you know, being involved in over 150 cases of application of voluntary assisted dying, whereas uh, most GPs have been involved in half a dozen. Uh, you know, at most, that would be quite an experienced, relatively experienced GP. Uh, at the moment, there is a real clustering of the of the assessment provision amongst the specialists. Um, so I think it's it's very important that uh, I think that that difference is is appreciated in in terms of workforce availability. Interestingly, also I think there was in the same period there was around 220 neurologists um, and about 190 hematologists. So uh, regardless of the specialty that's involved, it's it's really quite. Uh, difficult to obtain a specialist who's willing to provide a VAD assessment, who's done the training. And then when the patients are, are required a home visit, you know, specialists don't do home visits as a rule. That's that's uh, specialists sit in ivory towers and and, and the patients come to them. Uh, GPs do home visits and that's what many, patient, many patients need. So uh, it's also very hard to find a VAD trained specialist who will do home visits. Uh, and then one who will also provide practitioner administration also then becomes uh, a, an even rarer breed. So you can see how those requirements have led to a significant strain on those of us who are providing the assessments at a specialty level. I would hope that once the legislation is reviewed and the time comes to do that that there will actually be some changes made to make it easier for everybody who's involved and I would certainly like to see more GPs uh, do the training and become involved but it um, as Cam has mentioned it does take a toll emotionally and it can be difficult to fit into busy busy schedules it does take time to to go through this with people and also you do it more for love than for money. So uh, for sometimes it's uh, the financial uh, issues weigh more with some doctors than others. And the, that's not really been addressed in the provision of this service. So much as I dislike to <laughs> talk about money, it can also be a barrier for doctors getting involved. Andrew. Well, I think the first thing is, uh, and Cam has spoken about this, it requires more doctors to get engaged. And I'm, I'm going to give a, a shout out to uh, Health Professionals for Assisted Dying Choice, which is a, a group of health professionals around Australia that support these laws for medical uh, professionals who may be listening, who thought, well, I haven't given this a lot of thought, but maybe this is something that I in principle agree with. Please go there. So it requires more doctors to sign up and, and educate themselves, as I said, about the need for the laws. I think things uh, like telehealth clearly need to change. Unfortunately, that's a federal law and it's going to require the federal parliament to change the law there to, uh, to, an, to exclude voluntary assisted dying from a definition of suicide, which is what that law is supposed to be uh, about. It's the conversation now within the medical communities. You know, I, in the course of my research, I interviewed a 
a fabulous uh, senior palliative care leader called Molly Carlisle, who was deeply uh, oppositional to these laws. She came from a strongly uh, Catholic background, both personally and in her training, with that view of a natural death, and um, felt that, yes, palliative care can really deal with everything, uh, taking into account terminal sedation. But a couple of things started to challenge her thinking, and she she sat herself down and said, why am I so oppositional to this? And she came to a point which I thought was very principled. How can we say that we believe in patient-centered care and we support your choices as a patient, except the ones we don't agree with? And she said, I felt that was being hypocritical. And so she has moved and she's on the implementation. I was on the, uh, she's on the voluntary assisting review board panel for Victoria. And I find that deeply principled. Um, and uh, I do accept that there are doctors with a strong conscientious objection, and I, I strongly support their right not to be involved. But I think there are um, many other doctors who, um, health professionals perhaps, who um, are caught in what I would describe as an old way of thinking uh, that doctor knows best. And I, I would uh, urge them humbly to um, look more carefully at what is happening with voluntary assisted dying and what it is meant for the doctors involved and what it is meant for the people involved, the families involved, and the people dying. And while I understand those who cite do no harm as their reasons for not getting involved, I think um, it is also a very deep expression of doing no harm to help somebody who can't be helped in any other way through voluntary assisted dying. Well, thank you. Uh, and that wraps up this conversation. Nola, Karen, Andrew, so thanks for taking the time to navigate a a difficult and an emotional space, but obviously an important one. We appreciate very much the work that you do beyond conversations like this, work that guides meaningful change with a person-centred approach. Thank you. Thank you, Tash. Thank you, Tash, for this discussion. Thanks, Tash. And thank you for listening to Taking Care. Don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on Apple. Uh, you can find us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast, wherever you're listening to it right now by searching for Taking Care. Uh, please email us with any feedback or ideas at communications at opera.gov.au. Thanks and take care. <laughs>